Isn't it strange that we talk least about the things we think about most? Charles Lindbergh. It was once dubbed the trial of the century and was unthinkable. A baby was kidnapped from his parents' home and discovered dead several months later. His parents were among the most famous people in the world. But what happened to the Lindbergh baby? Was the right person ultimately convicted of the crime? Or was it something much worse? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born on February 4, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan, and he grew up in Little Falls, Minnesota and Washington, D.C. He was the only child of Charles August Lindbergh, a Swedish immigrant, and Evangeline Land Lindbergh from Detroit. His father had three older daughters from a previous marriage. When Lindbergh was seven, his parents separated in 1909. His father, who served as a U.S. congressman, a Republican from Minnesota, between 1907 to 1917, was one of the few congressmen who opposed the entry of the U.S. into World War I. His book, Why Is Your Country at War?, criticized the nation's entry into the war seized by federal agents under the Comstock Act. His mother was a chemistry teacher at Cass Technical High School in Detroit and later at Little Falls High School, from which Lindbergh graduated on June 5, 1918. He attended more than a dozen other schools from Washington, D.C. to California during his childhood and teenage years, and none for more than a year or two, though he enrolled in the College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in late 1920. Lindbergh dropped out in the middle of his sophomore year and then went to Lincoln, Nebraska in March 1922 to begin flight training. After quitting college, he enrolled in the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation's Flying School in Lincoln in early 1922. To gain flight experience and to earn money, Lindbergh left Lincoln in June to spend the next few months barnstorming across various Midwestern states as a wing walker and parachutist. He also briefly worked as an airplane mechanic in Billings, Montana. His first solo flight came a year and a half later, in May 1923, at Souther Field in Americus, Georgia, a former Army flight training field, where he bought a World War I surplus Curtis JN-4 Jenny biplane. Lindbergh took off from the Americus for Montgomery, Alabama, some 140 miles to the west, for his first solo cross-country flight. He spent much of the remainder of 1923 engaged in almost nonstop barnstorming under Daredevil Lindbergh. Following a few months of barnstorming through the South, Lindbergh reported to Brooksfield on March 19, 1924, to begin a year of military flight training with United States Army Air Service. Lindbergh had a severe flying accident on March 5, 1925, eight days before his graduation, when a mid-air collision with another Army SE-5 during aerial combat maneuvers forced him to bail out. Lindbergh ultimately graduated first overall in his class in March 1925, earning his Army pilot's wings and a commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Service Reserve Corps. He was promoted to a first lieutenant on December 7, 1925, and to captain in July 1926. 
In October 1925, Lindbergh joined the Robertson Aircraft Corporation at the Lambert St. Louis Flying Field in Angla, Missouri, serving as chief pilot for the newly designated 278-mile Contract Air Mail Route 2 to provide service between St. Louis and Chicago to intermediate stops in Springfield and Peoria, Illinois. On April 13, 1926, Lindbergh executed the United States Post Office Department's Oath of Mail Messengers. In mid-February 1927, he left for San Diego, California to oversee the design and construction of the Spirit of St. Louis. He was entering the Ortigue Prize, a $25,000 reward initially offered on May 22, 1919 by New York hotel owner Raymond Ortigue to the first Allied aviator or aviators to fly nonstop from New York City to Paris or vice versa. In the early morning of Friday, May 20, 1927, Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field, Long Island. Over the next 33 and a half hours, Lindbergh and the Spirit faced many challenges, including skimming over storm clouds and wave tops. The aircraft fought icing, flew blind through the fog for several hours, and Lindbergh navigated only by dead reckoning. Finally, he landed at Le Bourget Aerodrome at 10.22 p.m. local time on Saturday, May 21st. A crowd estimated at 150,000 stormed the field, dragged Lindbergh out of the cockpit, and carried him above their heads for nearly half an hour. There was minor damage done to the spirit by souvenir hunters before the pilot and the plane reached the safety of a nearby hangar with the aid of the French military and police. Lindbergh's flight was certified by the National Aeronautic Association. After his heroic transatlantic flight, Lindbergh immediately became America's hero and became highly famous overnight. He was charming and had good looks to match his heroic stature. In December 1927, Charles met Anne Morrow, a 21-year-old student at Smith College, while they were visiting Mexico. Anne was the daughter of Dwight Morrow, a partner at J.P. Morgan & Company, United States Ambassador to Mexico, and a senator from New Jersey. Her father also served as a financial advisor to Lindbergh. Anne was immediately attracted to the tall and handsome Lindbergh, and the couple married in May 1929. They were at the height of fame when their first son was born on June 22, 1930. The couple decided to settle in a rural, private home to escape following their son's birth. The couple commissioned their dream home on a small mountaintop in New Jersey. The property sits in Hopewell and Amwell townships in Hunterdon and Mercer counties in New Jersey. After an extensive aerial and ground search on Sourland Mountain for a secluded spot within a commuting distance by air and car to New York, Lindbergh found the site where he wished to build his home. The land was reportedly cheap, had plenty of stone for building, was secluded, and had views of abandoned field, something one could use as a landing strip. Mrs. Lindbergh held the title to several hundred acres on Sourland Mountain by April 1931. The property sits on approximately 380 acres in a heavily wooded region off a winding road called Lindbergh Road. Construction began in 1931 on the single-family home and would continue into the mid-1930s. The architects hired were Delano and Aldrich a prominent New York firm, and Matthews Construction Company for the contractor and builder. 
Chester Aldrich of Delano and Aldrich was a close personal friend of Mrs. Lindbergh and had designed two other homes for the Morrow family. Delano played little part in the designs, bear his name. The Matthews Construction Company of Princeton, New Jersey began work on the site in March 1931, completing the house portion by late summer of that year. The residence is a two-and-a-half-story stone building with mixed architectural styles that reflect the French and English Tudor revival styles. Elements of colonial revival styles are visible in various treatments, such as the primary entryway on the north side of the residence to the double-hung and divided light window. The building is wholly obstructed from passers-by and is highly private and set off the winding drive approximately a half a mile from the main road. The exterior of the building is primarily masonry consisting of heavy rubble stone locally quarried. A whitewash or white stucco surface covers the rubble stone and the entryway is a massive panel door with side lights and a transom window. The windows are 6 by 6 and double hung. The roof is a steep and cross-gabled slate, which is commonly found in Tudor-style architecture. It is unclear how much of a role the Lindberghs played in the design of their home. Still, it did reflect their desire for privacy and safety seen in several features throughout the house, such as a discreetly camouflaged skylight in a one-and-a-half-inch thick slate roof, and the house's stone walls were 28 inches thick and gave the residence a fortress-like quality. The house's main structure consists of gable and facing wings on either side, giving a symmetrical appearance. The western wing wraps into the house's service quarters, extending southward beyond the facade of the main body. The house's interior contained a living room, dining room, library, kitchen with a large pantry, four bathrooms, five bedrooms, a servant's quarters, and a three-car garage. The Lindberghs lived at the residence during its construction in 1931 and early 1932. At 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, March 1st, 1932, that evening, the family nurse, Betty Gow, put the 20-month-old Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. into his crib in the upstairs nursery. He had been sick with a cold just a few days prior and was just starting to feel better. Around 9.30 p.m. that evening, Charles Lindbergh reported hearing a noise that he recalls as slats breaking off a full crate in the kitchen. At 10 p.m., Nurse Gow discovered that the child was no longer in his crib and not with his mother, who had just left to take a bath. Gow reported to Lindbergh the missing child, and Lindbergh found a note enclosed in an envelope placed on the windowsill. The envelope contained a ransom note with lousy grammar and handwriting, presumed to be the kidnappers. Reports indicated that Charles Lindbergh grabbed a gun and went outside around the house, accompanied by the family butler, Ollie Waitley. Together, they found impressions in the ground under the window of the child's bedroom, along with pieces of a homemade wooden ladder. Waitley then ran inside to telephone the Hopewell, New Jersey Police Department to inform them of the incident. It was reportedly 30 degrees Fahrenheit and frosty that night. Since the house was still under construction, a warp shutter could not be closed, providing a means of entry to a room supposed to be secured against the winds that evening. Charles called his attorney and his friend, Henry Skillman Breckenridge, and New Jersey State Police, and they were en route to the home within 20 minutes. 
the New Jersey State Police controlled the operations. Officers conducted an extensive search of the home and its surrounding area. Around midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and the ladder. Police did not find any usable fingerprints or footprints on the ladder or the letter, nor were any adult fingerprints found in the baby's room, including in the areas witnesses admitted to touching, such as the window, but the baby's fingerprints were. The short, handwritten ransom note had many spelling and grammar irregularities. It read, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you were to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or notify the police. The child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. At the bottom of the note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. Authorities attributed grammar and spelling mistakes to someone who did not speak English as a native language. Another attempt to identify the kidnapper was looking at the ladder used in the crime to abduct the child. Police realized that the ladder was not built correctly, but was built by someone who knew how to construct with wood and had prior experience in building. The police focused on the ladder as a primary means for clues to the kidnapper. They had professionals see how many different types of wood were used, the patterns made by the nail holes, or if it was constructed indoors or outdoors. On March 2, 1932, J. Edgar Hoover, the Attorney General and FBI Director, got in touch with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department. He told the New Jersey Police that they could contact the FBI for any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. The FBI did not have federal jurisdiction until May 13, 1932. The president declared that the FBI was at the disposal of the New Jersey Police Department and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey State Police offered a $25,000 reward for anyone who could provide any information regarding the case. Word of the kidnapping spread quickly and it became a media sensation. Hundreds of people converged on the estate, destroying any precious evidence. Many well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh estate, offering help and services. Lindbergh and prominent military men at the time speculated that organized crime figures perpetrated the kidnapping. Even powerful mobsters worked with Lindbergh, offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or legal favors. The garage at the Lindbergh residence served as the search and investigation nerve center. The kidnapping attracted strange characters, and Lindbergh paid the ransom, coordinating with authorities. From the beginning, Lindbergh used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. On May 12th, delivery truck driver Orville Wilson and his assistant, William Allen, pulled to the side of a road about four and a half miles south of the Lindbergh home. When Alan went into a grove of trees to relieve himself, he discovered the body of a toddler in the woods. The skull was severely fractured and the body decomposed, with evidence of scavenging by animals. There were indications of an attempted burial. Gao identified the baby from the overlapping toes on the right foot and a shirt that she had made. 
A single fracture to the skull killed the child, and the elements had severely decomposed the body. Police presumed that the baby died the night of the kidnapping. Lindbergh insisted on cremating the body. After discovering the fate of baby Lindbergh, Anne and Charles left their Sauerland Mountain home, never spending another night there. It wasn't until the Lindberghs decided to leave their estate that it was officially named Highfields. In time, suspicion fell on Violet Sharp, a British household servant at the Morrow home who had given contradictory information regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. She appeared nervous and suspicious when questioned. She committed suicide on June 10, 1932, by ingesting a silver polish that contained cyanide just before being questioned for the fourth time. Police confirmed her alibi later, but she may have known more about the case than she indicated. During 30 months, many of the ransom bills that were delivered were spent throughout New York City. Detectives realized many of the bills were spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. On September 18th, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noted a gold certificate from the ransom, a New York license plate number, 4U1341NY, penciled in the bill's margin, was traced to a nearby gas station. The station manager had written down the license number because the customer was acting suspicious and was possibly a counterfeiter. The license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard Hauptmann, of 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx, a German immigrant with a criminal record in his home country. When Hauptmann was arrested, he carried a single $20 gold certificate and over 14000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. Hauptmann was arrested, interrogated, and beaten at least once throughout the following day and night. Hauptmann claimed that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner, Isidore Fish. But Fish had died on March 29, 1934. Hauptmann consistently denied any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. When police searched Hauptmann's home, they found considerable other evidence that linked him to the crime. A key piece of evidence, a section of wood, was discovered in the home's attic. After being examined by an expert, it was determined to be an exact match of the wood used in the construction of the ladder found at the scene of the crime. On September 24, 1934, Hauptmann was indicted for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, Hauptmann was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr. He was surrendered to the New Jersey authorities to face charges directly related to the kidnapping and murder of the child. Hauptmann was charged with capital murder. The trial was held at the Hunterdon County Courthouse, New Jersey, and was dubbed the Trial of the Century. stage is set for the utmost tensity of drama as Hauptmann takes the witness stand. Questioned by his own lawyer, Riley, the Bronx carpenter in German accent begins his string of denials. On the night of March the 1st, 1932, <coughs> were you on the grounds of Colonel Lindbergh, Hopewell, New Jersey? I was not. 
on the night of March the 1st, 1932, did you enter the nursery, Colonel Lindbergh, and take from that nursery, Charles Lindbergh, Jr.? Defense attorney Riley listens as Hauptmann denies the kidnapping. As soon as you got the idea of kidnapping this child, just as is set forth in that letter. I never got an idea to kidnap any child. Then that board from Hauptmann's house with Jaffsy's address. <laughs> what? Nothing. That is not your handwriting. You take a look at that. You've seen it many times before. <laughs> In spite of that denial, Attorney General Willens has the record to show that Hauptmann had previously admitted that Jaffsey's address on the board was in his handwriting. The cross-examination grows more bitter. The most exciting hour in the most exciting of trials. The fiery prosecutor accuses relentlessly while Hauptmann's wife listens. You conceal the truth, he shouts. From District Attorney Foley, the truth, weren't you? You conceal the truth from Inspector Hauptmann. You conceal the truth from the police. You conceal the truth from the Supreme Court Justice. You conceal the truth about your wife. You conceal the truth about the board. You conceal the truth about everything in this case, haven't you? No, sir. Yeah. No, sir. Lindbergh in the center watches as Hauptmann flares to fury under the word lie. Telling lies don't mean a thing when you do that. Stop, sir. Didn't you swear to one truth in the Bronx courthouse? Didn't you swear down truth at the court? Didn't you lie on the road? Time and time again, didn't you? I did not. Hauptmann was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. His attorney appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court, and the appeal was argued on June 29, 1935. Hauptman turned down a significant offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He was electrocuted on April 3, 1936. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about how the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial including witness tampering and planted evidence. In the year following the kidnapping, Ann Lindbergh turned the house over to a corporation of trustees. That year, she wrote, We have called the place Highfields, in which there is a second secret meaning. It pleases me very much. While unknown what the secret meaning is, there has been speculation that the name commemorates the infant's special greeting for his father. The kidnapping publicity and the aftermath forced the Lindberghs into a European exile where they lived between 1935 and 1939. By 1941, the Highfields Association conveyed the house and lands. Charles Lindbergh was named president of the state of New Jersey under the Department of Institutions and Agencies supervision. Since the 1950s, the home has served as a juvenile rehabilitation center by the New Jersey Department of Corrections. Today, it is known as Developing Opportunities and Value Through Education and Substance Abuse Treatment Residential Community Home under the Juvenile Justice Commission. The community serves the juvenile female population ages ranging from 13 to 24 and hosts a maximum of 16 residents.
New Jersey had the property added to the Register of Historic Places in 1994, but it is not open to the public. Charles and Anne went on to have five more children and remained married until he died in 1974. Anne became an author, and she died in Vermont in 2001 at 94. The location of the property, on the Sourland Mountain, with its fortress-like house and remoteness, nearly indicates the kidnapping might have been an inside job. It is nearly impossible for one or more kidnappers to have not been detected by someone in the house, nor likely for the kidnappers to find the correct window and room to find the baby without a prior knowledge. With his fame, wealth, influence, and power, what role did Charles Lindbergh play in the crime and investigation? What if Lindbergh plotted a crime to regain his heroic status and something went horribly wrong? What if baby Lindbergh was accidentally dropped while the adult holding him was climbing down the ladder? What if the crime was a conspiracy among many and one scapegoat, Hauptmann, taking the blame and ultimately paying with his life? The investigation was tainted from the beginning, and we will never know the truth in this case of who killed the Lindbergh baby, the innocent child lost in an unthinkable crime. Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and references, please visit nightmarehouses.com. Until next time, goodbye.